turn in your Bibles to Psalm 37, and we're going to kind of break this one up because it's a little longer. Man, we've been through a lot of Psalms. I was looking at my list of all of them, and there's a bunch of them. I think we started doing this back in uh, about May or something like that, and so uh, one a week for most weeks. There are a few weeks that we were doing something else or didn't have services over the holidays, but that's a lot. And uh, I've kind of uh, stressed some of the shorter ones, but uh, this one was on my heart. And when it gets on your heart, you got to do something with it, right? And so uh, we'll just break it up and take a little bit at a time. And kind of like they always say, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. And so we'll just take it one bite at a time. And uh, so you might ought to pray if the Lord puts Psalm 119 on my heart. Whew! That's a big one. That's a big one. But you know what? One bite at a time. One bite at a time. And I hope that as we've gone through this, you've seen some things that uh, the Bible addresses real people, real issues, real situations in life. It's not all, you know, hip, hip, hooray, three cheers for Jesus. There's some hard stuff that uh, God's children will go through. And uh, I've been reading a little bit through the book of Exodus, and I thought, 400 years of slavery in Egypt that they never saw coming. Never saw coming. And uh, in fact, when Jacob first brings his family to Egypt, remember Joseph has already been there, but when he brings them in there, they're happy. And remember how Pharaoh, you know, gave them, you know, the best land and all of that kind of stuff. But boy, it changed after that Pharaoh died. It says in there, and this has always struck my attention, Then there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. You know, things can happen. Things can change. And about the time we think things are set in stone, then we find out, well, not so much. Things can really change. We know this in our daily lives. Um, I guess one of the best illustrations that I know of this is uh, April 19th, 1995. I was in Tuttle. And uh, we took our staff downtown to the mayor's prayer breakfast. We were invited to be there at a table there. And we heard a um, testimony from a, uh, an executive from Ford Motor Company that was very good. There were about uh, 1,500 of us down there. And while we were gathering and praying, Timothy McVeigh was taking that rider truck and pulling up to the Murrah building. Uh, everything changed that day. And we didn't see it coming. We had no idea that that was going to happen. Nobody did except the devil and God and Mr. McVeigh, I guess, and some of his cohorts. But none of us knew. We didn't see that coming. It was a beautiful day. If you ever go to the memorial and you ought to and go into the museum and you ought to, it's very well done. And they've even updated it since I've been there. They, uh, when you first go in there, they talk about what a beautiful spring day that it was but everything changed. And the reason that is is because we are short-sighted so many times. We can only see what's right in front of us. We can't see the end from the beginning. We can't see how all of this is going to work out. And going back to uh, what I was saying about in uh, Exodus with Joseph, how much of the big picture do you think Joseph had when he was thrown into the pit? I mean, I don't think if I were in Joseph's shoes that I would go down to the pit and say, Glory to God, this is the beginning of a beautiful, beautiful picture in history. I don't think he could see that. I think that you see Joseph in um, the time when he is sold into slavery, when he gets to Egypt, and then it's just, you know, he kind of rises to the top of uh, all of Potiphar's household, and then what happens? Then he's in prison. He kind of rises to the top there, and then the butler and the baker come, and what happens? Well, one of them's executed, and the other one forgets him. And so you see Joseph wondering, how do I see the big picture? Now, remember, he had a glimpse of it. Remember those dreams? Those dreams that got him in trouble? You were all going to bow down before me. And, you know, they're thinking, yeah, we got news for you, buddy. We're not bowing down before you. But we can look at the big picture when we read in Genesis about Joseph's life. And it kind of colors our, uh, our perspective, I guess, you would say, when we read about Joseph because we sort of know 
what's going to happen. Joseph didn't have that luxury. And I want to just say, you don't have that luxury either. You don't know what tomorrow brings. And uh, you don't know uh, what the next decade is going to bring in your life. You have no idea. But the Lord knows. And what David is counseling us to do and giving us a little bit of a warning about this in Psalm 37 is to understand that there's only one person who has the big picture and that is God. Now, in case anybody misunderstands, I don't think you will, but God is not just a spectator watching things happen and reacting to them. He is the blessed controller of all these things and it's all going to go the way that he has ordained for it to go in the time period that he has ordained now what is that I have no idea and neither do you I don't know when the Lord's going to return I don't know what's going to happen to us politically or economically I don't know what's going to happen personally to any of us or to our family or to our children or grandchildren we just don't have any clue on any of those things and so we've got to walk by faith now you can either let your fears paralyze you and get you off track and take your eyes off of Jesus or you can do what Psalm 37 says now one of the things that struck me as I read this is how many times do we read something similar to uh, what it says in um, verse 1. It says, do not fret because of evildoers. I kind of get the idea that whether you have the internet or not, whether you have social media or not, whether you have 24-hour news channels or not, there's a natural propensity for God's people to fret over things. Now, sometimes I think that all of our information piling in on us, I think it does a number on us. There's a lot of anxiety today, if you haven't noticed. But I'm not so sure that if we got rid of all of that, it would relieve much. Because I think about uh, my grandmother didn't grow up ever using a computer or a smartphone or anything like that. And boy, could she, she was a world champion worrywart. I mean, she could see things coming that you couldn't even imagine. She should have been a fiction book writer or something like that or write movie scripts or something. She was really, really good at it. And so, um, and she didn't sit down and watch the news and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And she didn't watch CNN or any of those things. And yet she still had the anxiety. And I was thinking the other day that uh, what it must have been like back in, uh, let's go back to Little House on the Prairie days. And Paul goes out to go hunting, and he's gone for three days, four days, five days. And about that time you go, I think he was supposed to come home about this time. But think about what the anxiety levels must have been when it was five days, and maybe he's delayed, maybe weather comes in or something like that, and you wonder, you don't hear anything. When men would go off to war back in those days... They didn't even get a telegram or anything like that. They didn't know. They didn't hear any updates. They didn't hear about battles. They didn't hear about, you know, anything like that. Even in World War II, it was a little bit different. Vietnam, it was different than that. And what they do now is a lot different because of instant communication. Um, think about what it must have been like, the anxiety levels that people must have felt, not knowing if their father husband was going to come back from the battle or come back from the hunting trip any number of things could happen in there and so you go back to the days of David and sometimes when we say no news is good news well that was somebody trying to convince us that the absence of news was okay that was trying to make somebody who didn't know anything feel better wasn't it because what happens when we don't get information we tend to fret. And then sometimes when we get the information, we fret. In other words, why does the Bible have to say so many times, be anxious for nothing and all of that? Because it's human nature to worry. It's human nature to have anxiety. It's human nature to, well, as David is going to say here, to fret over things. So we need to uh, think about this because I think that, that worry is one of the sins that rarely gets confessed 
because we think it's so natural and so normal, and yet we're commanded not to do it. Spurgeon uh, said this, Sinners are not, as a general rule, punished here. Their sentence is reserved until the day of judgment. This is not the time of judgment. Judgment is yet to come. And yet David is going to tell us that one of the things that we worry about is when are the sinners, when are the evil people going to get what they've got coming? Why do they get away with these things? Why do they say and do these things and face relatively little consequence in this world? The people of God have been asking that question for thousands of years. Thousands of years. It's not just now. It's not just our time. And how many generations before us have they said, well, it must be time for the Lord to come back because it can't get any worse than it is now. And what's happened? It does get worse. And about the time you think it can't get any worse and about the time you think you've seen it all, what happens? Something pops up on the, you know. Boy, the devil, um, he's, he's got an arsenal, doesn't he? And it's amazing how people that are bent towards sin, how dead they are toward the things of God, but how alive they are toward evil and perversion and all of that. And so the word for us tonight, Psalm 37, verse 1. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. That's kind of a strange combination there, isn't it? For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. The faith and works, faith and works. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. So rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger. Forsake wrath. Do not fret. How many times do you have to say that? Do not fret. It only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off. How many times does he have to say that? But those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. I mean, again, how many times does he have to say that? Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth. And shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Now, remember, especially in the Old Testament, whenever they repeat things, that's not because they couldn't think of anything to say and they just, you know, repeating themselves. They're not just rambling. This is on purpose. Every word that we read in here was breathed, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And it's not a stutter, it's not a ramble, it's not, you know, anything like that. This is not somebody who couldn't remember what they said and they repeat their stories over and over. This is God speaking through David as a prophet. And whenever you find this repetition, that is the Holy Spirit putting it in large font, bold print. So whenever this happens, don't just say, well, I know that one. Well, I've seen that one before. Good night. How many times does he have to say it? Understand the Lord is underscoring this because this is a problem for the people of God. It's a problem for you. It's a problem for me. It was a problem back then. In the good old days, it was a problem before the good old days ever came. It'll be a problem in the great tribulation. It'll always be a problem as long as humanity is unglorified. 
Now, when you get to heaven, this won't be an issue. You won't need these verses in heaven. In fact, you'll probably read these verses because the Word of God is eternal. You'll read these verses and you'll probably laugh. Wasn't that silly what we worried about? Wasn't that silly that we were wondering how this is going to take place? And look at that. It's been thousands of years and it took place. God did exactly what He said He was going to do. He didn't do it in our lifetime, but He did it later on. And wow, what a great God we serve. And we'll laugh about some things and we'll rejoice about other things because when we get to heaven we'll finally be able to have the big picture on everything we don't have it right now but we ought to be looking at it as much as we can and so I've broken it down as I normally do into four things to think about this God's people need to think long term Okay, I think this passage that we read, these 11 verses, just drip with that. Because we get so caught up in the immediacy of what's happening. We get distracted by the urgency of little things that really don't matter. Uh, a guy wrote a book called The Tyranny of the Urgent. And he said that we are driven by things that are trivial, but they appear to be urgent. Now, 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 now. Better take care of this. Better take care of this. And we leave the big things undone. I heard another person that said that... As churches, we tend to be flexible in our goals, but rigid in our methods. And then he went on to say, is there a better way to do the Great Commission than what we're doing now? Are we taking advantage of the technology and things that we have now? And no. And so we'll let the big tasks go unfinished in our generation because we are so rigid in the way that we do it. We've got to do it this way and we'll fight any kind of changes and we'll let the goal just kind of be out there evaporating well we do that in a lot of our lives don't we because we think short term we think short term and so uh, we think about uh, our health for example and as soon as we finish that bag of Oreos we're gonna start on eating healthier aren't we and what happens we crave something and we have to satisfy the craving and we will surrender, I guess, to the craving. And then we will do what? Gripe about the fact that we're not healthier. And we'll have regret, you know, over those kind of things. The same thing happens with money, you know. When, uh, well, I'd rather, I've, I don't know how many people I've had that said this. Well, I'd rather enjoy my money now while I have my family. I wonder what they're going to say when they're 65 or 66 or 67. I think about how short-term we are on things with people. We look at people and we see them and we label them in a certain way. And we never really see the big picture of God's redemption. Setting them free from whatever it is that is controlling their life right now. People change and people grow just like you do. And uh, again, like we said earlier, kind of jokingly, I'm glad YouTube wasn't around when I was in high school. And you probably are too. Because as wise and dignified as we are now, we were probably, I mean, we could rival some of these millennials, couldn't we? And uh, there were stupid things that were going on. And think about how many people you know now that they were so cool and, you know, they did drugs and all of this kind of stuff. And, oh, they were just so cool. And you look at them now when they're middle-aged or senior adults, not so cool anymore. Uh, because why? We don't think long-term. We think about the immediate thing. We think about what we want right now. And this is a big, big problem. And I think as the... Uh, uh, generations go by, I think this becomes a bigger problem. So let me ask you a question. When is the last time you really stopped and watched what's going on in the world and looked at it through the eyes of God's promises? Because sometimes it looks like God's promises are going to have a hard time being pulled off if this person gets elected. How could God ever fulfill his word? Are you kidding me? But that's the way we act. That's the way we act. And sometimes we look and we see things going on in the world. And you know like, oh no, there's going to be trouble in the Mideast. Newsflash, right? There's been trouble going on in the Middle East since Esau and Jacob, right? And uh, that's what's prophesied. There's going to be wars. 
okay, somebody said there will be wars and rumors of wars. Hmm. Oh, it's hard living in the world today. There's sexism, racism, communism, socialism, all kinds of isms. I like the guy that said we have a lot of isms that should be wasms, right? You'll get it. And uh, the truth of the matter is when we look at all of that, didn't Jesus tell us in the world you will have tribulation, right? But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Well, it doesn't look like it. And it doesn't feel like it. Can I add one word? Yet. Yet. It's going to happen. And so David said that God's people, if you want to overcome worry and anxiety and fear and all of that, you need to get the big picture. Big picture. Because Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. Right? And remember in John 14, he says that where I am, there you may be also. I'm telling you, one of the things that I think is going to happen when you are released from this flesh <coughs> and you get to heaven... I, 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 you know, what are you going to do? Some people are going to shout. Some people may fall down like John did as a dead man. Or I don't know. You know, maybe you get exuberant and all of that kind of thing. I don't know. But I kind of have a feeling one of the things you're going to do is to let out a big sigh that's going to last for eternity. Not, not the sigh, but it's going to be the last one you need. Because you're just going to, oh, I'm home. No more worries, no more cares, no more fears, no more doubts, no more attacks, no more betrayals, no more misunderstandings, no more shortfalls, nothing like that at all. Oh, it's over. The battle is over. And it's going to be a sigh of relief. And the sigh won't be eternal, but the relief will be. That's going to be a good, good, good moment in your life. And we need to think about that. We need to think. Think and meditate on that. I know we're limited, and I know there's a lot that we don't know, but I think that's what David is saying. If you're going to fret, and the word fret is the idea of not just uh, worrying like a you know little ticky-tacky worry type thing. The Hebrew word for fret here, it means to worry to the point of heated anger. Uh, let's put it like this. This is the kind of worry that just gets you agitated. You want to throw a shoe at the TV. You know, you just can't believe what kind of a fool is, you know, in Congress or something like that. I mean, those kind of things come up. And some of those things really stir us up to ungodliness. And David said, no, you're, you're a short-sighted person. You know, Peter warned us against being myopic. He said that people who lack, and he, remember he named all those things you add to your faith, virtue and goodness and all kinds of things I can't remember all of them but he said those who have these things are neither barren nor unfruitful that's a good thing but he said the one who lacks these things has become nearsighted short-sighted see I can understand that I've been nearsighted all my life even to the point of blindness so you just don't see anything clearly that's a bad thing. And having forgotten that their old sins were purged. It'll cause you to doubt your salvation. And when the enemy wants to uh, trip up believers, that's what he does. He gets us looking and focused. Now, I watched somebody the other day. I think uh, we were at Target. And it was a young lady. And she walked out in front of us like this. You know how many people are getting hit by cars because they're not looking up? It's happening to a lot of people. And uh, what is this? This is short-sighted. We've got traffic. We've got cars. We've got things like that. But we're going along like that. That's not a smart thing to do. 
And yet, let me tell you what's happening to a lot of believers. We've got these wonderful promises of eternity, wonderful verses that tell us that God is in control. And all we can see is not any of that. We're so busy walking, looking at our problems and looking at what's going on. And boy, the enemy has a field day with us. So David said, quit fretting. Quit getting agitated. Why are you mad at lost people when they act like lost people? Why are you adding, mad at a cursed world that acts like a cursed world? Where does this stuff come from? How could the Holocaust happen? Sin, right? How could persecution of believers in places like um, Iran, how can that happen? Sin. It's unrestrained sin that goes on like that. And David is telling us we've got to have a different perspective about all of this. Because their day is coming. We don't know when that is, but we know it's coming. It's as sure as God's word. He said they shall soon be cut down like grass. Oh, they seem so important now. And God said it's like just mowing your grass. Think about that. And he said soon. I don't know when soon is. But he tells us while we're waiting for soon to come, don't fret and don't be envious. Oh, they have it so easy, temporarily, temporarily, but we're focused on eternity. Secondly, if you look at verse 3 and following, God's people must evaluate their lives. Okay? What is he telling us to do? Well, it's not enough just to say, well, I'm not going to worry about anything. I'm not going to fret about anything. I'm not going to be envious. You have to replace those things with something. You have to replace them. It's the law of spiritual replacement. And if you are thinking about your life and your sanctification and there are certain things that God may say, you need to cut this out of your life, my counsel is going to be and replace it with something as soon as you can, something godly, something good. Because you know how your flesh works and you know how the enemy works and we go back to being Eve and focusing on what we can't have instead of all the things that we do have. So be careful. And David is counseling us here to take that fretting and that fear and put it aside get the get the big picture get the long-term picture and then you're going to have to replace it with something and that's going to be this just trust the bible says that without faith it's impossible to please god and think about how easy it is when things are going well and when everything it looks like it's working right oh i just trust god you know we just trust god with all of this oh god just takes care of all of that well what about the times when it doesn't go right that's when you find out where your trust and where your faith really is. So he says, trust in the Lord and do good. That's that faith and works. They always go together. Uh, dwell in the land, the place that God has provided for you, and feed on his faithfulness. You know, we have a tendency to think we produce things. We make things happen. We are the movers and the shakers. Truth of the matter is, whenever we eat, whenever we are blessed, and you can even take this into a spiritual thing. It's always because of God's faithfulness. God is faithful to bring the rain. God is faithful to bring the seasons. God is faithful to make the crops grow. God is faithful to bring the fruit in. That, those are good things. And so uh, next time you uh, uh, go and, and, and you get a you know, cluster of grapes and you eat them. Don't you? I love grapes. Don't you? They're good. You know what I'm feeding on when I do that? Oh, the work of some farmer or some truck driver that brought it here. Yeah, that all comes together and plays into it. But none of them could create a grape. None of them could make them sweet. None of them could make it kind of satisfying. You know? Or whatever it is you eat, you're always feeding on God's faithfulness. When you hear a preacher that preaches something like Brother Ed did that just kind of blesses your soul and feeds you, you're not feeding off of him. You're feeding off of God's faithfulness. Whenever you are in a Sunday school class and you get some direction on how you ought to go, you're feeding on the faithfulness of God. And if we ever get that, I think we would overflow with joy. We would overflow. The good works wouldn't be a problem because we would be seeing and living off of the faithfulness of God. And you know what that does? It takes away your fear. It takes away your anxiety. Well, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? That's what the devil throws in front of you. You know what you and I should be looking at? None of that really matters because we're serving a faithful God. 
A God who loves us and saves us to the uttermost, the book of Hebrews says. A God who loves us, Jeremiah said, with an everlasting love. A God who, it says in the book of Titus, cannot lie. A God who saves us according to the good pleasure of his will. The God who is faithful in everything that he does. Feed off of that faithfulness. Get fat on faithfulness. And what do you do? What, verse 4. I mean, when you're feeding off of his faithfulness, you are going to delight yourself also in the Lord. Because you're going to find, even though your circumstances may be terrible, his faithfulness is always sweet. And it's always good. And his promises are always true. Paul and Silas singing in the middle of the prison after being beaten. Singing at midnight. Where'd that come from? Because they were feeding on the faithfulness of God. That's, well, harken back to uh, quite a while back. That's what honey from the rock is. It's the faithfulness of God. I mean, I'll reiterate. Honey does not come from rocks. Unless God does it. And a faithful God can bring honey even out of a rock if he needs to. It's not a problem for him. And so there's nothing that tests God or taxes God or strains God or challenges God or anything. He can bring honey even out of a rock. Why? Because we feed not on the rocks that are around us, but on the faithfulness of God. And the God who can bring honey out of anything he wants to bring honey out of. Because he created it after all, right? And so we delight ourselves in the Lord. And that's the key, in the Lord. And then it says, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Does that mean I can have anything that I want? Only if I'm delighting myself in the Lord. And if my delight is in the Lord, guess who's controlling my desires? You know what he's saying? I'll give you the desires of your heart. He didn't say, I'm going to give you the stuff your heart wants. I will give you the right desires in your heart so you desire the right stuff. This is a promise to give you a desire for good stuff. Man, my heart can go all over the place. But when I'm delighting in the Lord and feeding on his faithfulness, he turns my heart and I start wanting what he wants. If you don't feed on his faithfulness, and if you don't delight in the Lord, you could care less whether anybody gets saved or not, as long as you're going to heaven. But when you delight in the Lord and you feed on his faithfulness, you have the heart of God and the desire of God, and he commanded us to give the gospel to every creature. Paul fed on the Lord's faithfulness, and so he could delight in the Lord and sing in prison at midnight, but he also had a burning desire in his heart to see people saved, as you read about in the book of Romans. I mean, this is just natural. In fact, Spurgeon said, and I think uh, Brother Ed quoted this, he said, if you are not, this is a paraphrase, interested in winning souls, you're not a believer. Why? Because that's the heart of God. And we think about God loving his word. The Bible says that he has exalted his name above his word. And I see all of these people going around and they're doing everything in the name of Jesus and making all of these commands and then violating his word, taking it out of context or even ignoring it. And I'm saying, you don't know the first thing. His word is exalted above his name. If you don't love his word, you're not lined up with the heart of God. If you don't love his church, you're not lined up with the heart of God. If you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're not in line with the heart of God. Because when you get saved and you're feeding on the faithfulness of God and delighting in the Lord, your heart starts matching up with his heart. Your desires match with his desires. And he gives you the power to do things you never thought you could do. And you feed on the faithfulness of God, which turns into delighting in the Lord, which turns into him giving you desires in your heart, which brings us to number five, which means that we commit our way to the Lord. You know that word commit there in the Hebrew is a funny word. It means to roll means to roll. Now I had to do some thinking on that because that didn't make commit, roll. What in the world did they go together? And then I thought about the times when uh, my uncle Kenny had a dog named Coco. And Coco would climb a ladder, go up on the tin roof of the barn to catch a ball. And so you go, Coco, and you throw a tennis ball 
hard as you could up there, and it was a big barn, you know, and, and Coco would go up that ladder on that, on that tin, jump up there and catch the ball, and then slide down and almost fall off, and, you know, and then come down the ladder and bring you the ball. Isn't that amazing? What made me think of that? Because every time you would throw the ball up there, the ball had no choice but to roll. You know what I think commit your way to the Lord means? Roll with it. Roll with it. Wherever he leads you, roll with it. Wherever he takes you, just roll with it. That's what you're supposed to do. It's not an accident that you're where you are. It's not an accident that you are going through what you're going through. But what you need to learn to do is to roll with it, just like that ball would roll down the peak of that barn, the peak of that roof. you got to roll with it. Why? Because you're not going to fight it. You're not going to change it. You're not going to get out of it. you got to roll with it. And there are some people throughout life, going back to Joseph, what did he have to do? I mean, you can't do anything when your brothers throw you in a pit and God allows it. You just got to roll with it. When you're taken by Midianites to be sold into slavery in Egypt, he's never going to get away from that. He can't break those chains. God's not sending angels to deliver him. I mean, God could. And God did deliver Peter out of prison. You remember that? Why didn't he do that for Joseph? Because God had a different plan. Joseph, just trust me and just roll with it. Commit your way to the Lord. This is the way it's going to go. Now, you can pray. You can fight. You can argue. You can get mad. You can do all kinds of things. But after a while, a mature believer learns this is just the way we've got to roll. Roll with it. That's hard to do sometimes, isn't it? But that's exactly what the word commit. Or it could mean, here's my burden, and I'm going to roll it over to the Lord. It's another way you could look at that verse. I'm trying to carry all of this, and it's more than I can carry. Here, Lord, we're rolling it over to you. It's kind of like if you uh, leave one work and go to another, and you have your IRA. What do you do with that IRA? You roll it over into a new one at the new place. Well, that's what this word commit means. It means to roll. It's kind of interesting to think about that. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him. And look at this. And He shall bring it to pass. He's not frantic. He's not scrambling. He's not coming up with a plan B, as we've said before. So trust and feed and delight and commit. Just roll with it. God is good. He knows what He's doing. And you're not having to straighten him out. Okay? Number three, God's people must remember God's promises. I know that there's times when maybe we could uh, say tonight, what's your favorite promise in Scripture? And we could go for quite a while with that. Okay? But right now is not really when you need to remember the promise of God. There are times when you desperately need the promises of God. Warren Wiersbe said something that um, uh, is, is very important. He said, God's people do not live by explanation. They live by promise. Can I say that again? God's people do not live by explanation. They live by promise. And yet when we get into a trial, what's the first thing we ask? Why? Why? And if you do that, you're normal. We can't fix normal. That's just the way it is. And uh, the psalmist would do that, and you find that in the Bible. It's just natural. Jesus on the cross, when the Father and the Holy Spirit turned their back on him, his first question was, why? I don't think that's sinful. I don't think it's wrong, or Jesus wouldn't have done it. I think that we always ought to be looking for answers. But sometimes God doesn't tell you why. Sometimes there's no earthly explanation. There's no biblical explanation for anything. It just is. And so what do we do? We need to cling to the promises, the promises of God. Do you know the promises? Do you stand on the promises, as the old hymn says? And are you clinging to those promises? Do you even believe those promises? Because he's going to bring forth your righteousness as the light. It's just a matter of time. And your justice as the noonday. He's going to set it all straight one of these days. Rest in the Lord. You might as well. What are you going to do? 
Rest in the Lord. Roll with it. And wait patiently for him. And do not fret because of him who prospers in his way. Why are they getting away with that? Why is God blessing them? They're worse than I am. That's not none of your business. None of your business. Don't fret because of him who prospers in the way. Because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Why don't they get caught? Why don't they get punished? Why doesn't that happen? Remember Spurgeon told us. They don't get judged in this life the way we would like for them to be judged. It's in the next. Well, God sure gets after me when I do something. Yeah, because he loves you and because you're his child. And whatever he does in discipline to you, it's for your good. It doesn't last very long. And you've got an eternity to live where you're never going to mess up where you have to be disciplined again. Somebody say amen to that. But for those who seem to be getting away with it now, how long are they going to get away with it? A few decades? Have you ever read Revelation 20? The great and small are going to be called before the Lord. And he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. And he's going to go into a lake of fire that Jesus said was prepared for the devil and his angels. How long do you reckon that is going to be? Eternal eternal so have some compassion on lost people because this is as close to heaven as they're ever going to get and just remember whenever you go through the trials hell may splash over on you a little bit but that's all it is a temporary splash yeah it hurts but it's temporary you'll get through it and God's promises are still intact and we've got to remember that we've got promises that we live by. Standing on the promises of God. And number four. God's people must be consistent. That's our biggest problem. We're just so stinking inconsistent. And no wonder our testimony is not as powerful as it ought to be. Because about the time uh, our lost family members and friends and neighbors and other people see us shouting the praises of God. Oh God is good and God is good all the time. And then they see us tomorrow. When it sure doesn't look so good. And we're as depressed as they are. Why should they listen to us? We're as angry as they are. Why should they listen to us? God has a better way for all of us to live. And he wants us to live a consistent life. A life of faith. A life of trust. A life of joy. He wants us to be pursuing that as we are delighting ourselves in the Lord. Which is kind of the key. So cease from anger. That means quit it. Stop doing it. It's not right. It's not changing anything. And all it's doing is hurting your testimony. And it is robbing you of the joy of the Lord, which is your strength. No wonder you're tired all the time. No wonder you're anxious about everything. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Quit expressing it. Do not fret. There we go again. It only causes harm. It only causes harm. The wrath of God, we're told... Does not, I mean, pardon me, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. No matter how hard you try. No matter how justified you are. That anger resides, Solomon said, in the bosom of a fool. And we've got a lot of angry people today, don't we? I mean, put it this way, we've got a lot of angry Christians today. And the Bible tells us, stop it. That's a command. It's an imperative. Stop it. Cease from it. Quit it. Make this happen. And don't fret because it only causes harm. Physical harm, internal harm. A lot of diseases come upon people because of stress and anxiety and because of anger and unresolved issues and things like that. It weakens your immune system, all of that. It causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off. He's saying that again. It's going to happen. Quit acting like it's not. But those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. There's a kingdom coming, folks. There's a king coming, more importantly. I saw a thing today that I posted it on my Facebook page that the most important day was not when men walked on the moon. It's when God walked on earth. The king has come. He's died on the cross. He's defeated death, hell, and the grave. Defeated it. It's not just a possibility. It is done. It is finished, he said. And he's ascended to the right hand of God the Father. 
And the father said to his son, this is in the Bible, sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. So what do we do? We rest and we wait. Some of us are going to die and we're going to wait in heaven. It's not a bad place to wait. Some of us, depending on when the Lord comes back, will be raptured out. And we'll wait for those seven years, having the marriage supper of the Lamb while the earth is in great tribulation. But there's coming a day for all of us when Jesus is going to step up off of his throne. Can you imagine heaven and the angels and all the saints going, and he's going to get on a white horse, and we're going to hear the rallying cry. I wonder what that's going to be as we are summoned together as his armies. And we're going to follow our king as he comes back to this rebellious, treasonous, sin-scarred, dirty, smelly, awful planet. And he's going to come back here, and he's going to destroy the beast and the false prophet, and he's going to take over and reverse the curse. And the Prince of Peace will be reigning on the throne of his father, David, in Jerusalem. And we shall reign with him for a thousand years. And all of the prophecies that are left to be fulfilled will be fulfilled at that time. And the government will be upon his shoulder. That's going to be a day. You know what? Wait for it. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And we've got to be consistent as we live. Because as we do this, we're going to inherit the land, inherit the earth. Just like Jesus said, blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. That's those people that are under the submission and the control of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, uh, he is telling us here that this is going to happen. And notice this last thing. They shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. And we'll stop right there. Peace. Not just showing up here, here, you know, a little bit. We haven't had peace for a long time. We've been in war so long, we've forgotten what it's like to be at peace. You know? We thought Vietnam was a tumultuous time. A long war that didn't seem to make any sense. Short compared to what we've been doing in Afghanistan and Iraq. Right? How do we get out of all of that? Well, at least I'm not fighting. Well... It's probably true, but some people are fighting, and we need to always remember those who are fighting for our freedoms and fighting our enemies and be grateful to them and remember their families. It's tough. And there are people that get wounded, and there are people that die, and uh, there are people that fathers that won't come home and mothers that won't come home now, those kind of things. It's a hard land in which we live because any peace that we have in this age is always a spotty, temporary kind of peace. There's peace over here, but they're sure not over here. And there may be a time of peace over here until somebody else raises up their head and causes some trouble or something. I mean, you can't count on peace. In fact, the Bible tells us that about the time they say, Peace and safety, what happens? Sudden destruction comes upon them. Why? Because they weren't ready for it. But when the king comes, when Jesus returns, you want to talk about peace. You want to talk about prosperity. You want to talk about joy. You want to talk about really, really, really living here on earth. Oh, man, it's going to happen when the king comes and sits on the throne of his father David because there will be an abundance, an abundance of peace during that time. Doesn't that sound good? Peace in every aspect. Peace in your soul, peace in your mind, peace in your family, peace in neighborhoods, peace in the cities, peace in the country, peace among nations. All of that is going to happen and it's going to be like the world has never seen since the Garden of Eden. And you and I are going to experience that and be a part of that. So what do you do in the meantime? Think long term, don't you? Remember the promises of God. Remember that. Be patient as you wait upon Him and delight in Him 
feed on his faithfulness and trust him because he'll bring it to pass. And all of these things are going to happen because we serve a faithful God. And we know it. The world doesn't. But we know it. And we ought to be the ones that are resting in him. That's the kind of thing that makes me want to say amen and oh me in the same time. Right? Because that sounds really, really good to me. At the same time, I fall so short of what David commands me to do. Don't you? And I'm amazed at myself and amazed at, you know, when I watch some of you too, how quickly, how quickly we can turn and become a fretter. Okay? Let's ask God tonight as we close to give us peace in our minds and let us rest in the Lord. And then I think about Isaiah where he said that thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. So those times when the fretting comes up, that's just the Holy Spirit waving a red flag. Son, daughter, you're not trusting. You're not trusting. You don't have peace because you're not trusting. Hey, get it right. Get it right. Let's do that tonight, okay? Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we look for peace in all the wrong places. And then when we get a measure of peace that comes from you, we're so quick to kind of like we're carrying it in a, in a cup and we spill it. And uh, we act as though the peace has run out when the truth is it's always available to us. Jesus said, my peace I give unto you, not like the world gives. We want peace that passes understanding. But we don't really want to trust. We don't really want to feed on your faithfulness. We don't want to delight in the Lord. We don't really want the desires of our heart to be changed from evil to good, from frivolous to valuable. We, we don't really want to do that. And then we wonder where the peace is. So tonight we've heard you. And we've heard what David said through your word. That is coming from you to us. And there are commands in there that we need to obey. But Father, we're already going to confess. We can't obey those commands. You'll have to do it in our lives for us and through us. So we surrender all of our anxieties. We surrender all of our short-sighted knotted up, messed up, convoluted thinking. We surrender that to you, the God who has all things in control, who knows the beginning from the end, who has everything right on course. And we are committed now that whatever comes our way, we're going to walk with you, trust you, delight in you, and we're just going to roll with it. And you'll get us out when it's time to get out. And in the meantime, let us not be the ones who fight against our God. Let us rest in the Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. So.